Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. For 35 children and their families, this was a very good week. And Hello. Hiya, Kieran. What was your reaction when your mom, your mom told you the news last night that Cap Trio was coming? It was just the best news I've ever heard in my life. Wow. I can finally start my dream of being a soccer player and playing exactly. for Man United. <laughs> exactly. Well done. Well done. Well done. Now, you're only seven. The most important, <laughs> the most important thing for you is that Man United win the next game, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're gonna win the we're gonna win the Premier League. Oh, well done. Well, then luck is on your side and goodwill is on your side. And when you when you're playing for Man United, what position would you like to play? Striker. Cute as a button. Now, Caftrio is a drug that can potentially change the lives of people with cystic fibrosis, and up until this week, have been denied children aged between six and eleven. Now, the HSC have approved it. Ashling phoned in. Her daughter Robin will be getting the drug. When did you hear the news? Um, yesterday evening at six o'clock, um, through WhatsApp. Yeah. So um, I was shocked to see nineteen messages in the WhatsApp group, Brilliant. and I was just like, "Oh my god, it's so real!" Um, and yeah, it was just amazing. I didn't expect to see. It. Yeah. And um, it, when I got home, I couldn't get in touch with my husband and to let him know the news. And yeah. when I got in the door, I just scooped Robin up and I was like, we've got it. I was like, we have a cafeteria. I was like, it's over. <laughs> it was there jumping around. And my husband and daughter, Anna, and the two boys, yeah. we were all cheering. And uh, yeah, it was such an emotional moment because it's obviously been hanging over us for so long. Yeah. And um, yeah, it just brought great joy and Today, she went in to tell the whole school and anyone that she could meet on the way that she was getting cafeteria. Her SNA sent me a little snippet of a video and she's standing in front of the class and she's saying, we got cafeteria. My mum got a message last night and we fought for our rights and we got them and they all give her a big round of applause. Uh, and these are like eight and nine-year-olds, so like... When I seen that coming through and different parents texted me this morning because obviously she'd met them on the way to school. Like, she's yeah, just yeah. so ecstatic. Like, brilliant, she's brilliant. just like, what's going to happen? What difference is it going to make? And, you know, yeah. she's just super excited. And on Morning Ireland with Gavin, Gwanya Ilewing, whose two daughters, nine-year-old Quiva and seven-year-old Fia, will be getting calf trio. It's... It's even a shock to say it coming out of my mouth, but yes, the two girls are now eligible for this drug. A year later than everybody else, might I add, but um, we're just so happy with the news that we received yesterday. Can you tell me about their condition and how and how it affects them now? And then tell me about what difference you hope that the drug will make. Um, my youngest, Fia, has been on a constant antibiotic for nearly three years now, just trying to maintain... The, the exacerbations that she's having, constant coughing. Um, we've had croup seven times in the last two years. Oh she's, she just hasn't been well. My older daughter, Quiva, would generally be well. Um, she doesn't get as sick as Fia, but we've we've really struggled over the past few years just watching Fia deteriorate and get sicker and know for the last year that there's a drug out there that will just change their lives and we weren't allowed to have access to it. So the hope for this is that, I mean, something as simple as the kids can do a flight of stairs without running out of breath when they get to the top step, that 
we can plan a future. We can plan holidays without, you know, all the packing, the medication and just the constant worry that they're not going to be well enough going on holidays or they're not going to be well coming home. Um, family functions, even birthday parties for the kids, we've had to say no to an awful lot. So this to us means life. It really does. Um, we're only starting our journey with Caftrio, hopefully as soon as possible. And we've a long road ahead of us with Caftrio. Um, we know that a lot of kids are struggling with it, but we're hoping just that it's going to change their lives and change all of our lives. And for a finish, back to Liveline. This is Joe, whose nine-year-old granddaughter has CF. And this kind of sums it up. This is the best day of my life, Joe. It's like winning the lottery twice. A momentous week for those families. Meanwhile, though, in the doll, ructions, motions and counter-motions all over the place. On Wednesday, the government defeated by a margin of 15 Sinn Féin's motion for the eviction ban to be extended. Green Party's Nasa Hurricane voted against the government slaps in the form of a 15-month suspension and a loss of her role as a Rockthus Budgetary Committee chair. And next week, a Labour motion of no confidence in the government. Drive Time brought us this from Labour TD, Aon O'Reardon and Fianna Fáil Senator Mary Fitzpatrick. That's a pathetic presentation because Minister Mary Butler herself has come out and criticised the deal. So Fianna Fáil are talking at both sides of the mouth. Meanwhile, 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 uh, heartbroken families who Labour are on has no credibility, Aon, at this point. Hold on, hold on, hold on. on. Sorry, sorry, Mary, you are the person who's supporting the ending of the eviction ban. You're the person from the party that's voting people into homelessness. Talking about credibility when it comes to Labour What did party, you do when you were in government? What did Labour do? They abolished affordable housing, they cut the capital housing budget. You actually were the authors, you brought in the budget, you brought in the voter funds. you have, Labour have no credibility on housing. If you don't stop, that's my final warning. Golly, let's park the politicians there and see if we can get some insight from policy analysts and academics. This is Lorcan Sir, lecturer in housing at Technological University Dublin, and he joined Clare. And if once renting was the stepping stone to buying, the future may look very different. If you look at the Housing for All, the government's uh, plan, the plan is actually to produce an average of 30% of all our housing uh, every year as private rental. Now, not so, we're not talking about social housing or social rental or affordable or anything like that. We're just talking about the normal private rental sector. And that goes from 30% in 2022 to 40% in, t- in 2030. So that's twice as many. So the plan is to produce twice as many private rental units as houses for sale every year. This is bonkers. There are so many people in the rental sector who could afford a property or could afford a mortgage to buy if they could find one. And the problem we're having at the same time as we're planning to So the strategy, the government's strategy, strategy is to pursue the rental market and to increase private tenancies in this country. Yeah, absolutely. So at a ratio of two to one. So two private rental properties for every private house for sale. And that's on page 32 of Housing for All, if anybody wants to have a look at that. And so you see that, and that doesn't make sense when you have so such a large proportion of the people who are already renting who could afford a mortgage. But what we see then on the, on the house building side, on the houses coming for sale, that we're averaging about 7,500 houses a year uh, coming to the market, we'll say. You know, so out of the 29,000 built last year, only a, a small, you know, only a proportion of those come to the market. Last mm-hmm. year it was 28%. In 2017, that was half. So in other words, half in 2017, half of all the houses that we built in Ireland came into your local estate agent's window for you to go down and have a look and buy. Last year, that was 28%. And the plan is to have twice as many rentals 
as houses for sale every year. What does the government strategy do to rents? Well, the theory is, I think, uh, in the in the in the custom house that if we produce more rental properties, rents will come down. But property doesn't work like that. You know, when rents fall, when house prices fall, those providing the builders and the, and the, the landlords stop providing because you know who builds houses when prices are falling? What landlords build apartments for rent when rents are falling? So everything is predicated now on rising house prices and rising rents. So it it, it never works like that. And we've seen you know in the last five years we've seen 17, 20 odd thousand apartments for rent built and have we seen rents come down? Of course we haven't seen rents. Lorcan Sir of Technological University Dublin. But the government has agreed measures to provide increased protection for renters from the start of April. On Morning Ireland, Gavin put this to Seamus Coffey, economics lecturer at UCC and former chair of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. The plans that are being proposed, the expanded tenant in situ scheme, uh, which will mean for renters in receipt of state support, such as half that councils can purchase their homes and make it available to them as social housing. For those not in, re- in receipt of supports, that their local housing body or council can purchase the home and rent it back to them at cost rental or not-for-profit basis. Or the measure where tenants who are in a position to buy their home, um, that they will be given first refusal on it or can apply for the state-backed shared equity scheme, which will reduce the upfront cost of purchase. Now, Jay and Saoirse were both not, were neither of them were very enthusiastic about any of these plans. What do you think of them? Yeah, I, I have a similar view to those that are on the front line facing with these issues. Like these are again, are all policies focused on owner occupiers or focused on social housing. Like our problems are most acute um, in the, the private rental sector. Yet what we're seeing are policies introduced about taking units out of the private rental sector, either bought by the tenants themselves uh, or bought by local authorities. Um, that is improving the position in terms of those parts of our housing sector. But the one, as I've said, the area where the pressures are most acute uh, are the private rental sector and almost none uh, of the proposals uh, are dealing with the issues there. Uh, It seems to be a case of we like helping the insiders, like some of the insiders are those in rental accommodation now and maybe we'll provide things like rent controls, we provide an eviction ban and now all these various proposals uh, to have the homes bought by either themselves uh, or the local authorities. Uh, But these do nothing for the the outsiders and the outsiders are the people in the queues that go around the block uh, when there's any open viewing for rental properties. There's close to nothing in the proposals for them as one of your contributors set out. And there we will leave it. But for those renting, all of this a constant reminder of their vulnerability. Now, timepieces at the ready for It Is Forward this weekend. Here is Angus Cox with a little bit of history from Eamon McEnany at the Irish Museum of Time in Waterford. How far can we trace back the origins of this clock change that we do twice a year? Well, in Europe, it goes back to 1916 when the Great War was on to start in Germany, followed by the rest of the European countries. And when it was brought into to Britain and Ireland at the time, we were part of the United Kingdom. Um, Ireland also had to synchronise with London. Before that, we were Dublin time, we say, was 25 minutes and, and t- uh, 21 seconds behind London. And there's a lot of... Um, uh, comment about that of course that we were losing time but we were matched then with London and we have been ever since and in those times the time changed at, uh, in May but now it's brought back it's been synchronised throughout Europe to go back to, to, to March and then in October And you were showing me one of the clocks here at the entrance of the museum and it has three different times from across Ireland because we used to have different time zones here on the island Yes, it's, um, yes well there's different times in Ireland but th- that particular clock shows you different times in London and in Edinburgh and in Dublin as I said Dublin was then 25 Um, minutes and 21 seconds behind London. And we cannot have that. With Claire heralding the spring, farmer and writer John Connell.
what marks it though for you? Like what makes you feel like it's it's spring? I would imagine farming is a little bit easier when the weather's better. Oh God, yeah, yeah. So you, well, the animals go out and um, uh, you breathe a sigh of relief that you've got over another winter. I suppose um, it's in nature for me and, and a little feeling of warmth, you know, yes. uh, that you go out and maybe you're not as rugged up and you can, you know, I'm, I, I'm wearing a nice cardigan today and I, I can survive in that. It's the little things. And uh, I suppose for me, it's like the bird song again, the evening starting to get that little bit brighter for longer. The grand uh, stretch. The grand stretch in the evening. Yeah, it's those it's those small things, yeah. but they all cumulatively add up to make us feel that the season has changed. Yes. And for lambs, it's fun time. We've just went through lambing season and uh, so the lambs are out now. Um, but I'm aware of lots of dairy farmers who'd be doing spring calving. So really intense, busy time mm-hmm. getting animals safely into the world, feeding them, protecting them. Um, I suppose it's a it's a lovely time. You know, I'm, I'm working on a book at the moment about sheep. And uh, I was just reflecting because I... Even though I worked with sheep for seven years, I only became a shepherd myself with my own sheep last year. So it was kind of a whole journey I've been on with them. And uh, when you have stake in the game, when it's your own money and your own sheep, it's totally <laughs> different, you know. I can it's, a, it's a joyous thing. And seeing them out in the fields, you you uh, it, it brings a smile to your heart. There's something so happy about sheep. And did you keep them in? Were they, they in the, for a while? They're, they're, they come in in the winter to lamb and mm-hmm. then uh, when the weather gets better they come out. And uh, So did you have that moment because I would have seen this with cattle when I was small but when they go out into the field that joyous moment where they oh, really yeah, are frolicking. Yeah, yeah, they're lovely. They love it. Um, you know, there's nothing a lamb wants more than to be a lamb and a sheep wants nothing more than to be a sheep. They're not worried about <coughs> Heidegger. They're not worried about uh, the, the next budget. They're worried about getting out into the fields and uh, drinking their mammy's milk and nibbling on maybe a few nuts uh, mm-hmm. later on. Mm-hmm. Oh, lovely lambs. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Culture File, Songs from the Soil with improvising vocalist Lauren Kinsella. These are the fruiting bodies which we can see. The whole collection of songs is about learning about the magical, mysterious aspects of what fungi are in nature and how plants and animals respond to them. Ma chuche song se. The rhythmic syllabic sounds. Ma chuche song se. When you're working as a as an improviser, you're thinking about the resonance capacities inside your mouth and also all of the different parts of the vocal tract that make up the percussiveness of all those sounds. So your teeth and your tongue and your lips and your jaw and the skin on your face. All of these things determine and help shape the contour of what those things are. Angels wings. Beechwood sickner. Autumn skull cap. Fool's funnel. We come across these incredible names like Panther Cap, Fool's Funnel. Yellow sickner. Kind of mysterious sounds. Panther Cap. Funeral bell. For me, I think they they feel like pop tunes. 
but also we're exploring songwriting and we're exploring a kind of really deep, luscious, sonic palette. And, and in that, you know, people get to experience the, the songs, but also the sounds that the words and the songs call for. Great sounds, but there's always something slightly creepy about a mushroom. From Culture File. Now, how young is too young for a little bit of The Exorcist? Cormac did wonder, but according to Dr Sarah Cleary, author of The Myth of Harm, Horror, Censorship and the Child, that annoyingly nuanced answer, it depends. I'm not going to send children out to suddenly start watching The Exorcist. Horror is a flavour, it's a taste. And we have a little thing called parenting. And that you assess whether your child or something is appropriate for your child or not. Mm -hmm. And if you feel that your child is able to take certain films or take certain books or take certain video games, well, then you introduce them and you talk to them about what it is. Especially if what it is is the swivelling head of a satanic devil child. Now, she will acknowledge it might well be scary, but harmful, not necessarily. I kept seeing these reports coming through that had these minuscule pieces of evidence that really amounted to nothing, um, which were completely blown up in the press about how horror harms or how video games harm. And I started to say, well, what's behind all of this? So I took a deep dive into the research and I went back over 100 years worth of research and my evidence found that the whole thing is built on a deck or a house of cards. <laughs> Why so? no... So basically what happened in the 1930s was horror films very much became in vogue. And this was also a rise during um, kind of the study of media effects. Now, one of the reasons for this is we get very, very upset about what our children are at during any great cultural crisis. We get very upset. Now, obviously, during the 1930s in America, there was the Depression. And clinical and moral hygiene became an intense focus. What are people at? Well, people are starving to death and they've got no work. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why they're robbing and there's juvenile delinquency. But hang on. We also have the rise of horror films. So let's take a big, deep dive at that. And what I saw was these deep and very unsettling correlations between taste, inappropriateness, and the conflation of those things with harm. Mm -hmm. Losing a night's sleep because you watched a scary film is in no way going to be harmful in the long term to your kid going forward. I know people in their 30s and 40s who watch a scary film and won't be able to sleep that night. So the big difference here is... And for Cleary, horror films have always held appeal for kids on the outside. From a macro zoomed out perspective, the horror genre has always been an advocate for the disenfranchised. It's always been an advocate for those outliers and on the margins of society and children because they're disenfranchised. They don't know what's going on. They have no control or agency. They are very much disenfranchised. And if you look at a lot of the horror films in the 80s, especially, and now we're seeing that coming back and back again with Mm -hmm. this 90s nostalgia, especially horror films were very much focused on children, especially children with absent or ineffectual parents. And also as well, another kind of major dominant trope of horror films is if we actually just listened to the child who told us that the monster was real under the bed. 
we actually would be able to save ourselves. Okay. So horror films yeah. teach but us to listen. Okay, well, to it's very children. interesting indeed. From Drive Time. On Arena, more outsiders when Peter Murphy reviewed The Art of Darkness, The History of Goth. If that is, we can find any goths. Nobody would own up to it. Only the worst bands. The irony is this. Anybody who called themselves a goth band was usually the worst. The runt, the runts <laughs> of the litter. And the best practitioner of the form always uh, would say, we're not a goth band. That could have been The Cure. It could have been uh, Susie and the Banshees. It could have been The Sisters of Mercy. It yeah. could have been The Cult, Fields of the Nephilim. You name it. Are you um, going to admit now that you were a goth yourself and on the dance floor at I one would time? I never Peter? have admitted to it at the time, but looking back on it, there was hairspray. There was backcombing. <laughs> there was soap. There was plucking. Yeah. There was shrieking. Uh, but, you know... You're goth- reappraising your own history here. Absolutely. In this book, a, lo- a large part of the pleasure of this book is looking back on it. I mean, goths were sneered at in the hip yeah. popular press. And, you know, Dave Lee Roth once said that Critics love Elvis Costello because they all look like him. <laughs> oh, that is the bang of a truth off it. So, Goths, then stand up and be counted. Who are you? Where are you? The term Goth is a catch all. It could be anything from dark psychedelia mm. to black metal to post punk to uh, one of the, the points that Rob brings up is that the dance floor was crucial. Uh, in many cases, the strongholds of of the youth uh, movement that was wow. goth, which is basically people from 16 to 24 wearing ripped fishnets and old army surplus and Victoriana. Uh, it is a congregation of people around a dance floor, very often in regional towns like well, the big cities, Liverpool and Manchester, but it wasn't a London-centric mm. phenomenon. It was, you know, Northampton and Bradford and not hip places, the sister, uh, Leeds, Sisters of Mercy, Bauhaus, all these bands were not from hip media yeah. centres. So these were resilient characters living. They had to run a gamut of teddy boys and, and uh, skinheads before they even got here. So there were an extra, it was an extraordinary... Yeah. They were already survivors. ...tribe. <laughs> and the author of the book under review, John Robb, well, he was one of the tribe. John Robb is a 61-year-old Lancashire-born culture journalist and, and author of like Stone Rose's biographies and oral histories in Manchester. But crucially, he he's the bass player and singer in a band called Membranes, who were pretty well-regarded post-punk band. So Rob approaches it as an evangelist rather than a critic. He has not a bad word to say about anybody throughout this entire book. Oh. He would, rather than talk about something he doesn't like, he'd rather omit it. So his tone is very effusive and enthusiastic and it has it has the effect of making you feel incredibly inspired and driven down the absolute rabbit hole of YouTube clips. Oh, down and down and down. But this book puts Goth in quite the historical context. There's about a 200-page prequel on goth architecture, on Goya, on on biblical history, uh, all the way up through the Romantic poets, Keats, Coleridge, um, Shelley. And that's the, first, that's the first third of the book. That's the first, well, 150 pages right. anyway, and also right. Edgar Allan Poe, right up then into 
the early days of cinema, Morticia Adams and Nosferatu and Murnau and German Expressionism, and how important the the visual aesthetic was, and how it bled into the Holy Trinity in the late sixties: the Doors, mm. the Stooges, the Velvet Underground, into Bowie and the German electronic band. I mean, this is a really rich. There's there's a way to look at this book as to say the history of goth is just another way of looking at the history of a darker tinged alternative culture or subculture that goes through a century and a half. And far from being a nostalgic tome, this might have that rare quality, genuine cross-generational appeal. It's for uh, people my age and also people my daughter's age who are bizarrely listening to shoegaze music. Go on to Netflix, take a look at Wednesday. Um, the, there's an iconic dance sequence in episode two in which Wednesday Adams is dancing to Goo Goo Muck by the Cramps, which has sent the Cramps's Spotify stats through the roof. The Cramps being your classic trash culture, 50s monster movie, zombie, vampire, um, schlockabilly, rockabilly, right. American sons of Alice Cooper. Just a little bit of the cramps playing out at Peter Murphy has heard on Arena. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Now Radio 1 can be a serious place, as it should be and befits the national broadcaster, right and proper, and that usually kicks off at 7 for Morning Ireland. But at 10 to 7... Speaking of the eye of the tiger... Wearing full full makeup this morning. Full makeup this morning, <laughs> because you'd never know when the call will come. I I, I noticed in the Herald they didn't mention which call. The go- <laughs> Who's calling? I didn't see, I, I didn't see your name on the list for the late late show, but I'm I, there. I'm there. I, Boyle Sports have me at a hundred to one. Boyle Sport. <laughs> and they, for what? For playing for Ireland? Just under Jimmy Buckley. Oh, that's <laughs> that's, well, that's great to see the two of you getting an outing. Where are you? What number? Oh, I'm not there at all. <laughs> No, I'm not there at all. Yeah, I always play my cards very close to my chest, as you know. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to overexcite anyone, so I pull back from... You're looking very well this morning, aren't you? And you're I'm very, doing... You're I'm very d- casually dressed I this am. morning. I, I am, I am. And yet suited and booted. You're, yeah, but you're in, the, you're in the shirt with the different colour buttons. Obviously, you've got a, beautiful, match. Like, you know, a beautiful navy shirt. Obviously, at some stage, you ripped open that shirt and all the, buttons, to all the buttons flew off. <laughs> and then you, and I replaced them. Then you replaced them with whatever was in the that box. That had no hole. You know, the, you know the, the the tea caddy that you had at home with all the buttons in it and the bits of needles. And when you what have to, you been doing you, in my house? When you lo- went to look for thread, or you always punctured your finger with a that's bloody needle one. that was yes, in absolutely. there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. That's what this, this is. This difference. is what young You've people. Red excuse and me. Green. This is what young people are wearing nowadays. Cerise. 
So have you got a cerise button? Yes, I go fine. down to Copeland's immediately. Everybody had cerise in the 80s. Is, excuse me. This is what young people are wearing now. It's to show a certain flair and, and a part of my flair of a personality. I suppose... Oh, look, there's a call. The Late Late Show, they're looking for you. <laughs> for, are you ready for the auditions? Hang on. Oh, I didn't mean I to I went over, that. they had a yellow jacket and a torch. Who did? The Late Late Show. There you go. Park that over there. <laughs> You're a great man. So what are you playing now? What have you got? Uh, have well, I've just finished with The Eye of the Tiger. We that was in, a great tune. In deference. And we had a little bit of um, Richard Burton. That's wonderful. A bit of War of the Worlds. No one would have believed. That's out of that. No one would have believed. But you have a radio programme. <laughs> How dare you. How dare you. Listen. Listen, come here. Yes. So uh, you are, you're still available for that panto I was telling you about, are you? Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> Now, with Claire, the trials of being super rich, all, especially when it comes to dividing the family fortune. Spare a thought for the poor multimillionaires out there. Uh, there's a case in Australia involving Gina Reinhart. She heads up a huge mining company there. Her children uh, uh, took her to court over a $5 billion family trust. They wanted to take control of her from Gina. She didn't think they deserved it. And in the court documents, uh, Gina, uh, it came up that Gina said her three oldest children were slackers who lacked the capacity, skill or work ethic to manage the trust. She said it was probably best to keep the money from them to force them to go to work and reconsider their holidaying lifestyles and attitudes. So, Ow. you know, there's that famous quote from The Godfather, it's not personal a strictly business but when family is involved it's always a little bit personal oh, at least in yeah. that case very very personal always personal now. oh yes that's Adam Maguire with Claire and he brought us a quite shocking true life tales of hostile takeovers and vicious legal writs we start with runners Adolf Dassler or, or Addy as he was known and his younger brother Rudolf they set up a shoe factory in the 1920s did quite well for themselves called Geda Jesse Owens actually wore some of their shoes when he won gold in the 1936 Olympics but uh, their relationship soured during World War II um, apparently part of the issue was that the wives didn't get on Friedel and, and Cathy uh, they were forced to live in close quarters during the war as uh, a story that uh, uh, Addy and, and Cathy once climbed into a bomb, sh- bomb shelter where Rudolf and Friedel already were in uh, and and uh, AD said something along the lines of the bastards are back again. He was referring to the allies who are dropping bombs. Uh, Rudolf thought he was talking about them. Ah, uh, Rudolf also blamed his, his bro- <laughs> <laughs> he also blamed his brother for being called up to the the, the army uh, and for being imprisoned by American troops on suspicion of being a member of the SS. He thought that Addy had fed him that them that information. So a lot of paranoia and suspicion there. So in the end, they went their, their separate ways, uh, setting up their own rival shoe companies. Uh, Addy established Adidas from the name Addy Dassler. Rudolf did something similar he set up Ruda but in the end he, he changed his, uh, his uh, mind and, and rebranded as Puma so Adidas and Puma two brothers that and they separate. all lived happily ever ever <laughs> after separately yeah. ouchie and this kind of feuding can continue across generations Ferdinand Porsche was the, the man behind a lot of well known cars the likes of the Volkswagen Beetle Ultimately, he divided his fortune between his two children, Ferry Portia and, and uh, Louise uh, Piesch. And they were quite competitive in their own right, but that then continued into their own children as well, particularly Ferry's son, Wolfgang, and Louise's son, Ferdinand. Now, the, the business structure of, of Volkswagen and Porsche and the ownership between the two, it's, it's really, really complicated. But in short, 
Ferdinand Piëch eventually ended up as head of Volkswagen. Uh, Wolfgang Porsche was head of the Porsche business. Wolfgang didn't like what Ferdinand was doing and he quietly started trying to buy up VW stock in order to take over and Hostel take over. Uh, even though Porsche was a much smaller business than VW, he had to go public with his bid. He then started triggering other takeovers, which cost more and more money. And he ends up building up a debt of around 10 billion euro trying to acquire these shares. The idea was, though, that he would be able to repay all that when he got his hands on Volkswagen's cash. He would then be able to repay all that debt. But of course, he didn't. Uh, he failed in his hostile takeover. In the end, Ferdinand uh, um, managed to launch his own takeover bid of Porsche and they took over the, the, the business. Wolfgang still is bitter about this. He claims Ferdinand sabotaged his move uh, to take over the company and threw a wrench in the works. Uh, and apparently part of the issue is Ferdinand wasn't keen on having Wolfgang as his boss. So that's why he, he did the counter bid and took over. Uh, in, in a documentary, Wolfgang said, you can't choose your relatives. And he uh, he claimed Ferdinand had destroyed his life's work by walking away from VW and, and selling his shares to his brother Hans. So clearly that's a business where it's going to take a few more generations <laughs> to sort out. Settled, I think yeah. there's a lesson in all of this, isn't there, Adam? For, for the rest of us mere mortals. Yeah, just, I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. just just do, go your own way and yeah. <laughs> sell the business. Adam Maguire putting the squabbles over who gets the good China into a little bit of perspective. On Wednesday, over with the Darcy, a shameless outing of the ages of all on Team Ray. I know, I don't know if it has any effect on you. <laughs> what song was number one on the day you were born? But that's Neves. Uh, and then there's Emily H. Well, she's so fine, fine, fine. She's so fine. So that's the day Emily H was born and I was making a good living out of DJing. <laughs> Same time. <laughs> exactly. Oh, 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 it's right. Uh, our Neil, what was number one when he was born? Wasn't it good? Oh. So cool. Wasn't he fine? So fine. Isn't it madness? He can't be mine. But in the end he needs a Torch songs, that's what they call them, a torch song. I know him so well. No Elaine Page and Barbara Dixon. Emily P. I think my song has disappeared from the cartel. Let's see if I update it. No, it's gone. It was there, now it's gone. Is it, Ray? Gosh, funny how that happened. <sighs> on the drama on one, Bloody Writer is written and directed by Charlie McCarthy. And let's just say things get dark on this writer's retreat. The front door had a scrawled sign saying, Open, push, go to office. I pushed, went inside. It was all darkness and wood and dead things. 
a stag's head, a stuffed squirrel suffocating in a glass case. The skin of a tiger nailed to the wall, its open mouth screaming silently. I like dead things. On the way to the office, there were all these splashy paintings on the walls. They looked out of place, just like me. An old fat guy, about 50, was asleep at the desk. An empty glass, an almost empty bottle of wine. I like to frighten people. (laughs) (laughs) That always cracks me up. I'm about to have a cardiac arrest and you're cracking up, whoever the hell you are. <laughs> I just can't. It's just so funny when people get a fright like that. Is it? Well, don't let me spoil your fun by dying right here in front of you. <laughs> you Neve? Yeah. Dave. But you can call me Mr. David until I forgive you. You're on my list of arrivals for today. A list of one, as it happens. How'd you get her? I hitched. Hitched? A snowflake like you? I like to live dangerously. Do you know? And where did you hitch from? Tipperary. Tipperary. That a long way? Yeah, a long way to go. Very original. Hmm. Thanks. Forget it. Lame joke. Right, you're in Seamus Heaney. Come on, I'll show you. From the drama on one. And a writer who is extraordinarily successful, yes, shameless segue, is Harlan Coben. Thrillers, mystery. He has a plot twist for you, although he always knows the final destination. When you're when you're mapping out a story, I was reading that you you don't go in for this yellow post-it yeah. wall like something you might see in a mad professor's study in a movie. You you keep it clean. Is it? Do you do yeah. you have a, an ideas book, a, some sort of formula? Yeah, I mean, I do write down ideas sometimes, but I don't, you know, I'm doing, I do TV, they always do this. They have a board up and they move things around yes. and they put, pl- I don't do that. I have it mostly in my head. The end. I know the beginning and the end when I start a book. So I had to set up man in jail for the murder of his own child. Maybe the, the child's still alive. And I have the answer. I know almost nothing in between. Mm. So I compare it to driving from my home state, if you can picture a map of America on the far right where I live in New Jersey, to LA. I may go Route 80, which is the very direct route, but chances are I'll stop in Tokyo or do the, use the Panama Canal, but I always end up in LA. That helps to know, for me to know the ending before I start. And this interview turned into something of a masterclass in how to write. I, I will probably be the only author who has said this to you on the show, and if you're somebody out there listening who, who wants to write, my advice is not to do research. Really? Yeah, do as little research as possible, and here's why. There's yeah. two reasons. One is Research is a lot more fun than writing. So you'll do research in place of writing. So it'll be like, oh, I want to write a scene on Park Avenue in New York. But first, I have to fly to New York and I have to smell the hot dogs. No, no, no. You know what it's like. Just write it now. The second reason is sometimes writers fall in love with the research. So they fill up the book with a bunch of useless factoids and slow it down. That's not a problem for me because I don't know very much. (laughs) I'm going to, again, need to know basis. So... Just write the dang novel. Nothing replaces actually writing. Outlining is not writing. Creating characters is not writing. Hanging with your friends at the coffee shop is not writing. Reading other people's books are not writing. Only writing, only producing words on paper or a screen is actually writing. Take a no prisoners. 
but despite all his own success, his family are his early readers and feedback, well, it must be positive, else he's under the bed fetal position, weeping. Because I'm very sensitive, and I know that. <laughs> are you? <laughs> oh, are you? Well, my wife used to have to read it in the middle, and she would always have to tell me it was great, like because <laughs> we are all—all all writers are very sensitive, and we're all in, terribly insecure. I don't care who you are. Only bad writers think they're good. Everybody else, we all suffer, and so like my wife could read it and say, "You know what? Accidentally, you typed the word the twice in a row." I'm like, "Oh my God, you hate the book, don't you? Uh-huh. You're just afraid to say it. You hate the book. I'm a failure. You have that kind of." insecurity all the time as a writer and if they stop having it that's when they become that that author that's phoning it in but riddled with doubt anxiety failure around the next corner all to the good i often say that three things make a writer two are obvious one is not so inspiration is obvious perspiration doing the work of actually writing but the third and maybe most important is desperation and that is i'm not fit to do anything else like hold a real job yeah Neither are you. Correct. Right? That's why we do this. Yeah, That's part of what drives us to do this. You can't you know, do a real job. can't put job. stuff together. No. Right. I, we're disorganized. We're, we're, we have bad work habits. People hate us. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's really tough. <laughs> so that's, so that's just how, uh, that fuels you to want to do better what you're doing. But you're not Irish or Irish American. <laughs> but you sound like an Irish. Like your insecurity sounds so Irish. I think you're hanging around Boston too much. It's, maybe it's the Jewish because you know the other day I was leaving a party and I'm doing the Jewish goodbye and they go what's that? It goes it's the same as the Irish goodbye, but we feel guilty. <laughs> Well, on that note, that is it from this week's playback. Who says we don't go for the obvious? I am away for a few weeks with just the right amount of guilt. So thank you for listening and talk to you in a bit.